In his dialogue, The Phaedrus, Plato has Socrates describe the nature of the human soul by means of a metaphor. He likens the soul to a charioteer who's driving his chariot by means of two horses, each one inclined to pull in the opposite direction. One horse, the light horse, is noble and of good stock and is obedient and self-controlled. This horse represents the noble side of the soul or that inborn desire for beauty, for goodness, justice, and, and generally what is best. The other horse, the dark horse, is rugged and brutish and is defiant and disorderly. This horse represents the ignoble side of the soul or that inborn desire for bodily satisfaction and carnal pleasures. The charioteer driving the team represents reason or the intellectual power of the soul ultimately responsible for determining the direction of the chariot, for determining which horse will take the lead. Since the two horses are opposed to each other by nature, they are constantly pulling in opposite directions, one towards what is truly good in itself, and the other towards what is pleasurable for the body. And as Socrates explains, it's the task of the charioteer to rein in the carnal impulses of the dark horse so that the light horse might lead the way. The metaphor is meant to communicate that the virtuous soul is one in which the bodily passions are bridled and directed to the highest goods by the intellect, by reason. The vicious soul is one that's dominated by the impulses of the flesh and the pursuit of pleasure. So, through the voice of Socrates, Plato taught that the virtuous soul is controlled by the reason, rather than by bodily passions. Now, this piece of classical wisdom brings us to the next benefit that comes from pursuing a life of the mind, and that is the achievement of a well-ordered soul. Now, talk of a well-ordered soul is today out of vogue and probably seems somewhat archaic to you. We just don't talk this way anymore. But it used to be commonplace. In fact, from the time of classical Greece up until the modern era, the idea that there was an objectively proper and good ordering of the human soul was nearly universally endorsed by the Western world, including, of course, the Christian church. There was a time when virtually everyone believed in a universal standard of right living, in an objective measure of human flourishing. Now, of course, this raises an important question. How can we possibly know what that standard of human flourishing is? Well, for the classical philosophers, right up to the modern era, the answer was to be found, at least in part, by considering the essence or nature of humanity itself. And to understand this, we're going to have to get a little philosophical. The essence or nature of something is what defines it as the kind of thing that it is. To know the essence of something is to know what it is, what defines it, and what distinguishes it from everything else. There is an essence, for example, of what it is to be a tree, to be a rock, to be a lion, and to be an electron. 
There is something essential that is shared by all members of each of these kinds, something real that defines them and accounts for the unity of the kind that ranges over and is participated by all the individuals within that kind. Essences are an objective part of reality. We don't invent them ourselves. Rather, we discover them. They are out there, as it were, within the things in the world waiting for us to find them, to come to know them with our minds. Now, crucially, a thing's essence or nature does not just define what it is and unite it to other things of the same kind. It also grounds what it is to be good for the kind of a thing that it is, or what is conducive to its well-being, given the kind of thing that it is. In other words, what counts as good for any kind of thing is determined by the kind of nature that the thing has. What is good for a thing is what causes it to flourish as the kind of thing that it is. It is to be a good specimen of its kind. And what is bad for a thing is whatever causes it to fail to conform to the kind of thing that it is, to be a poor specimen of its kind. Take, for example, a knife, which is an artifact of our making. A knife has a certain essence or nature defined by its purpose and design. It's something intended to be used to cut things. Now, a knife will be a good knife to the extent that it exemplifies and succeeds in the purpose for which it exists. A good knife will be made of metal. It will be sturdy. It will have a sharp edge. Now, on the other hand, a bad knife will fail to exemplify or succeed in the purpose and essence of a knife. For example, it might be made from the wrong kind of material, say jelly, or it might be bent, or perhaps it has a dull edge. There is clearly an objective standard here for what it means to be a good knife and for what it means to fail to be a good knife. And this is based on the nature or essence of what it means to be a knife. So what is true for knives and other man-made artifacts is true for every naturally existing thing in the world. What is good and bad for any kind of thing will be determined by the kind of thing that it is, by its essence or nature. And this, again, is an objective fact about the thing. It's not subjectively determined. Like everything else in the natural world, human beings also share an essence or a common nature that defines us and distinguishes us as a species from everything else in the universe. And it follows from this that what it means to be a good human being will be determined by what it means to be a human being, by the common nature that is shared by all humans. So the proper conception of human flourishing and well-being, then, is objectively grounded in the essence of humanity. Now, the question then is this, what is the essence of humanity? What defines us as humans and what distinguishes us from everything else in the natural order? Aristotle taught that, like all living things, the human being is a body-soul composite, that is, a body informed by a soul. However, in distinction from all other living things on this planet, the human soul is rational. Although many animals have brains and can be said to think in some basic ways, they can be said to have a kind of sense knowledge, only we human beings have the power of intellection and reason. Higher animals can be said to know the particular in some sense. Your dog, for example, can know you as a source of food, a source of protection or comfort. But only humans can know your dog 
as a dog. You can conceptualize what it is to be a dog. You can form judgments based on that conceptualization, and you can reason about it. And because of this, Aristotle famously defines human beings as rational animals. Humans are a kind of animal in the genus of animal, but we are differentiated and distinguished from all other animals by our rational capacities and powers, powers that include both intellect and will. The essence of humanity, then, is defined by our rational or intellectual soul. Both Aristotle and Plato argued that because we have an intellectual soul, what is good for us, what makes us a proper specimen of our kind, what promotes human flourishing and well-being, will be related to the purpose and end of the intellect and will. And the final end, purpose and goal of the intellect, they argued, is to know the truth. And the final end, purpose, and goal of the will is to choose the good. So our nature is therefore fulfilled when we pursue the truth and when we avoid error. A good human is one who pursues the knowledge of the truth with the intellect and chooses the good that is known with the will. Now, for both Plato and Aristotle, the highest truth and the greatest good were both to be found in the highest and ultimate being in God. Thus, to be truly human, to fully embody the essence of humanity, to flourish as a human being, was, above all else, to pursue the true and the good as it is found in God. So, from the perspective of classical philosophy, a well-ordered soul is a soul that exercises its intellectual power in pursuit of the highest truth, and exercises its appetitive power in pursuit of the highest good. Man's overarching end and good in this life is to attain a knowledge of God, who is both the true and the good. Now, obviously, there is much here to be praised and endorsed from a theistic perspective, which is why Christian, Jewish, and Muslim theologians and philosophers happily assimilated this classical way of thinking into their own philosophical theologies. After all, the idea that there is an essence to humanity, a shared human nature, complete with purpose and design, is something that we find at the very beginning of the Bible. God, we are told in Genesis, created man and woman in his own image and likeness. Moreover, when reflecting on the image and likeness of God and mankind, most theologians and philosophers identify the powers of intellect and will as that which differentiates man from all of God's physical creation, and that which, therefore, is most godlike in us. So, from the theistic perspective, and from the Christian perspective in particular, it was easy to see that what the philosophers had discovered by means of rational reflection about nature was also disclosed by God in Scripture. It was also easy for Christians to endorse the natural law ethics of the classical philosophical tradition as well, since Christians also believed that there was a design in nature, that there was order and intelligibility in the world, that things had natures and essences that could be known and which grounded the basic properties and powers of things. All of this was established by God himself. Nature could thus be a kind of guide to what was good and evil for men and women. And like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and many others besides, 
The church fathers, the medieval theologians, and the early reformers all believed that the highest purpose and calling of humankind was to know and to choose the good, to know and to love God. And this is what explains the essence of humanity, the shared nature of all humans, what we've been designed for. From the perspective of both classical philosophy and classical theism, a well-ordered soul is a soul dedicated to the intellectual pursuit of the truth and to the willful pursuit of the good. A person with a, a well-ordered soul is like the charioteer who uses his intellect to guide his chariot towards the truth by means of the pool of the noble light horse for the highest goods, always resisting the pool of the ignoble dark horse for the lesser carnal goods. And to the degree that a person seeks to know the highest truths and wills the highest goods, to that same degree is that person flourishing as a member of humankind. And to the degree that a person refrains from pursuing the highest truths and wills the lesser goods, to that same degree is that person failing to flourish as a member of humankind. So devoting yourself to a life of the mind means devoting your life to the pursuit of truth and goodness. To be intellectually engaged as a truth seeker according to the ability that you've been given by God's grace, and to choose what is best is to embody the essence of humanity as a rational being. This is why, according to Plato and Aristotle, a person who neglects the pursuit of truth and focuses instead on bodily pleasure is acting more like an animal and less like a man. The carnal person literally fails to be a good specimen of its kind. Such a person fails the objective standard of what it means to flourish as a human being. Now, as I say, this is the collective wisdom that's been bequeathed to us by classical philosophy and classical theism. It is not, however, the wisdom of the current age. You see, the modern mind has largely discarded both theism, especially Christian theism, and the classical idea that there are real essences in nature that define what it is for a thing to be the kind of thing that it is, and what, what it means for a thing to be a good instantiation of the kind of thing that it is. In philosophical terms, we've traded the idea of essentialism, which is also sometimes called realism, for that of nominalism. Nominalism is the view that what we call essences are nothing more than mere names without any corresponding reality, and that only particular beings exist. It is no longer widely believed that the world is carved up by things according to their essence or nature. Rather, the prevailing view today is that there are only particular things in the world, or discrete, metaphysically isolated individuals. There is no such thing as, for example, treeness, only individual things that we group together in our minds and call trees, or there's no such thing as dogness, only individual things that we group together in our minds and call, and call dogs. And there's no such thing as a shared human essence of humanity, nothing that it means to be human, nothing real that unifies all humans under a shared nature.
no shared essence, only individual humans that bear some kind of resemblance to one another. And the implications of the denial of essentialism for nominalism are radical, and they are grim. As we've seen, the notion of essence goes hand in hand with the notion of purpose and design, and it grounds the objectivity of what it means to be good for a given kind of thing. And when it comes to beings with intellect and will, what it means to be morally good. In other words, if we deny that things have essences and natures, then we deny that there is intelligibility in nature, that things have an objective purpose and design. If there is no shared human essence in which all humans participate, then there can be no universal standard of human goodness in nature, since there will be nothing to ground such a standard in nature. There will be no foundation for unity. There will be no one over the many, no unity in the diversity. But once we've cast off the idea of God and a shared human essence to ground the objective measure of what it means to be a flourishing human being with a well-ordered soul, what do we have left? Where are we to look for a source of human identity, goodness, purpose, and meaning? Well, there's only really one place left for us to look inside ourselves, which is exactly what we have done. As a society today, we have abandoned the idea of an objective and universal standard of human goodness based on design and purpose in nature and a shared human essence. Instead, each person now looks to themselves for their own standard. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The measure of human goodness has become subjectivized and internalized. We now largely see ourselves as isolated individuals with the right to define what is good and bad, right and wrong for ourselves. Instead of looking to the essence of a shared human nature and conforming ourselves to it, we are now told that each individual has the right to define their own essence, has the right to design their own nature however they see fit. Instead of judging our inclinations and passions by the objective standard transparent to the light of reason, we are now defining ourselves by whatever internal inclinations and passions that we happen to have. Human meaning, purpose, goodness are no longer considered things to be discovered by us. They're things to be created by us. And if you want to find the philosophical source for the radical individualism that now grips modern Western societies, look no further than the, den than the denial of essentialism and the turn to nominalism. And this turn lies at the foundation and is a basis for what some philosophers, historians, and, and sociologists have called the phenomenon of the so-called psychological man and the expressive individual. These are ideas that are canvassed in Carl Truman's wonderful and well-researched book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And if what I'm saying here interests you, and if you'd like to take, uh, to take a deeper look at how we've gotten to where we are as a society, I strongly encourage you to read this work. Truman chronicles the story of the modern move away from the idea of the self as a member of the universal kind that is humanity 
and toward the idea of the self as an autonomous and atomic individual. This inward turn has led to the common belief that it is the inner self, namely one's desires and inclinations, that define a person's identity and which provide a context for meaning and purpose. Today, a person's identity is grounded in subjective psychological categories, hence the phrase psychological man. And meaning is found by giving expression to those inner feelings and desires, hence the phrase expressive individual. Now, because we have redefined what it means to be human along individualistic and subjective categories, the notion of goodness has also been redefined for the modern self. Goodness is now said to be whatever contributes to personal satisfaction. Personal psychological or inner well-being is now the measure of what it means to flourish as a person. And ours is a culture of psychologized selfhood with an ethics that is now based on personal happiness considered as an inner psychological state. And when a sense of psychological well-being becomes the goal and purpose in life, therapy becomes morality. And this explains why in our society today, psychology trumps everything, even biology. It is your inner desires and inclinations, we are told, that now define you, whatever they may be. And to find purpose and meaning in life, you must embrace those inner desires and inclinations, and you must express them outwardly to the world. And this focus on the inward and therapeutic is reflected every day by the mantras of our modern society. Become your authentic self, we're told. You can be whoever you want to be. Do whatever works for you. You do you. Don't worry about conforming yourself to a greater standard. However you are inside is however you ought to be. It's right. It's good. And as Truman shows, ever since Freud, the idea of psychological well-being, happiness, personal satisfaction, has been increasingly defined by sexual pleasure. A good life today is widely considered to be the life of personal sexual fulfillment. And a person's identity is increasingly being understood in sexual terms. And to understand where we are as a society today, we need to understand how we've gotten to this point. In broad strokes, Truman traces the progression of a carefully crafted transformation of human identity that has led us to the state of utter confusion that we find ourselves in today. First, the self was psychologized. Then, Psychology was sexualized. And finally, sex is politicized. As we've seen, it was once universally believed that there exists an objective standard of human goodness grounded in a shared human essence that's been designed for a purpose. The good life was a life that conformed to the ideal of human nature, a life of reason, a life of virtue, a life in pursuit of the highest good, God. Yet over the last 150 years or so, our society has become increasingly hostile to the ideas of a shared 
human essence, an objective standard of goodness, and a God who designed it all. Instead, today, we're told that each individual person has the sovereign right to determine their own identity, their own meaning, their own purpose, according to their inner psychological inclinations, whatever they may be, and without any need to worry about being accountable to a greater reality. The belief in a transcendent God who has ordered the world and infused it with objective meaning and purpose has been replaced by the belief in billions of individual self-gods engaged in the act of self-creation and who find purpose in the task of being their own makers. We began with the platonic metaphor of a well-ordered soul as a charioteer who guides his chariot by letting the noble horse lead according to the light of reason. And I think that we can see that this classical and Christian ideal of the well-ordered soul has been inverted in our day. The ignoble dark horse has today taken the lead, and it's collectively pulling us away from that which is really true, from that which is really good.